We're wrapping it up today. Some of you will probably go, yay. Some of you might go, oh, really? Because it was good stuff. Um, I'll warn you now. John 9 is going to go like a freight train. <laughs> okay? We're only going to do two weeks in John 9. Oh, well, most of it is the words of the Pharisees. We don't want to spend too much time on that stuff now, do we? Um, so it, it, it's one big dialogue, but it's all sort of stuck together. So John 9 will go much quicker than John 8 did. All right? Uh, let's see. Make sure I'm in the right spot. Here we go. John 8, verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do, not know, but I do know Him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray. Light of the world, you indeed have shone into darkness. Uh, you have come to bring truth and life to people like us. Help us to see the truth and enjoy the life that you brought. Help us to understand Believe and love the truth found in this passage of Scripture through the illuminating and sanctifying work of the Spirit. Amen. This morning I was on a fool's errand, I think. <laughs> There's a sermon I have in my head from Jonathan Edwards that I couldn't seem to find in uh, the works of Jonathan Edwards. And as I remember it, it was titled something like, A Bright and shining light. And what I remember from this sermon was this phrase that the truth should bring light and heat. This 
trying to remind pastors that they are to bring both light or truth and heat, passion, devotion, love, and delight in that truth that they proclaim. Because it is very easy for us to bring truth in a very almost academic kind of sense where we're not moved by the things which we are proclaiming as truth. I'm sure even biologists get excited sometimes in class when they teach people things, right? Pastors who have a great, much greater truth to present, according to Edwards, should be filled with that delight in that truth. Now, obviously, the opposite can be true as well. There are people who can bring lots of heat and no truth. They can be very passionate, and I tell you, they get really worked up, you know. It's easy to get worked up or pretend you get worked up. I can do that really well, okay? <laughs> the point is to get worked up about the right things and in the right way. As we look at this passage, remember, this is part of that whole uh, dialogue between Jesus and, the, and the, uh, the Jews in which he has revealed that he is the light of the world. Okay, there's light, and Jesus also has heat. Now, the Jews are going to have a whole lot of heat, not much light. Keep that in mind as we work our way through this passage. Okay? The big idea is the light of the world's glory is greater than Abraham. And these are the two things that really work through this portion of this dialogue. Glory and Abraham. And the relationship between those two things. And how they relate to the people of Israel. And even more important, to Jesus himself, the true Israel. So let's start. And we're going we're gonna to kind of do these in terms of an imperative, in a sense. Honor the, the one the Father has glorified. It really it represents, I think, verses 48 through 50, although it flows over a little bit, particularly in verse 54. But what we want to see and remember here is that Jesus has revealed himself in a particular way in this context, and that way is as the light of the world, which of course now prompts a heated, dark, not light, response. They start with the rumors the ugly rumors, as they begin to attack Jesus. You are a Samaritan and have a demon. Now, of course, they put that in a question form. Are we not right in saying? But I want you to get the, the idea here. They're calling him a Samaritan, and they're claiming that he has a demon. They're focusing on personal attacks. Okay. None of which is true, obviously. Let's deal with this idea that he was a Samaritan first. And uh, one of the arguments uh, or one of the options for what that means is that they're basically just calling him an ignorant half-breed. Okay? Because if we remember from the, about the Samaritans when we were looking at John chapter 4, we learned a couple of things. One of which is that they were a mixed people. Okay. There were some Jews that had been left in the land uh, during the Assyrian exile, and what the Assyrians liked to do was bring a new population in, and those people intermarried, and the Samaritans were, in a sense, brought about. So they're thinking that Jesus, because he was from the region of Galilee, which has many Samaritans, 
you're just a Samaritan too. Not only were they half-breeds from their perspective of the, the full-blooded Jews, but also they only accepted the first few books of the Old Testament. And so there was an ignorance that was there amongst them. They didn't have the full counsel of God that he had given to the Jews at that point in time. So, ignorant, half-breed, Galilean. What do you know is the idea. Now, there's another understanding or option for this, and it's rooted in something that's found in the Talmud, which is a commentary upon the Old Testament and other Jewish writings. And uh, Rabbi Janai, don't worry, there's no test on his name. It's okay. All right. But Rabbi Janai compared those who were trying to be teachers but had never gone to rabbinical school, he called them Samaritans. This probably would go back to an earlier passage here in John where they recognized that he never learned under anybody. Okay? So basically, it's the idea of you unschooled dolt. Okay? Both of them get you in the same kind of general vicinity, though. They're looking down on him as someone who was uneducated, who was ignorant, and therefore leading people astray. But they're not content with merely calling him a Samaritan, but they say that he has a demon or an unclean spirit. And therefore, if we think about who Satan was and why he fell and the understanding of pride and seeking his own glory, then they could basically be saying to him at this time, you are deceived, you are a deceiver, and you're seeking your own glory. Now, that starts to bring us to the whole question of glory now, doesn't it? Jesus starts by, of course, saying he does not have a demon. But he says instead, I honor my Father. Now, that makes the understanding of, of their accusation towards him as seeking his own glory much more clear. He's essentially saying here, I'm not seeking my glory, I'm not seeking my own honor, but I'm, I am seeking to honor the Father, not myself. But he mentions that they keep dishonoring Jesus. Now, you see, what the Jewish leaders would say is, we are trying to honor God. You, on the other hand, are not. And so, in a sense, they're dishonoring Jesus, thinking that that is how to properly honor the God that had revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and the rest. All the while, Jesus is saying, I'm trying to honor the Father as well. They both claim to have the same motive, but they're expressing it in very different ways. They thought they were honoring God by resisting the one that God had sent. Jesus then sort of says this cryptic statement, that there is one who seeks it. Okay, wait a minute. Who seeks what? Most likely, Jesus' glory. Okay? I'm not seeking my own glory, but there is one who seeks it. Jesus says. 
And the one who seeks the glory of Jesus is the Father. What is, is kind of cloudy here in the first couple verses is crystal clear in verse 54, where Jesus says, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. Okay? So the one who seeks the glory of Jesus is not Jesus himself, but is actually the Father. In opposing Jesus, they are therefore also opposing the Father who seeks to glorify Jesus or to give honor and reverence to Jesus, his Son. We see a glimpse of this in Revelation 5, where all the hosts in heaven rejoice before the Lamb who was slain saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. They're delighting. And the Lamb of God who was slain, they're delighting in Jesus who is that Lamb. Now, let's go back to John 8. What Jesus wants them to understand and wants us to understand is that they are not arguing with Jesus ultimately, but they are really arguing with the Father. But here's the rub. Not only is there one who seeks it, the glory of Jesus, but he is the judge. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Jesus is warning them that the Father is going to judge between him and them. And so how they treat him is no small matter. It is huge. It is serious business. And they are dancing with danger because they are resisting the Father. They are calling his assessment of Jesus to be false. And they'll be held accountable. Every non-Christian experiences or will experience this. Because the Father has, has presented Jesus to us as we read about in 1 Peter chapter 2. He's presented us to him as chosen and precious in his sight, as the cornerstone. And many people, just like the builders that are mentioned in 1 Peter 2, as he quotes from Isaiah, have rejected that cornerstone. They think their assessment of Jesus has greater weight and value than the Father's assessment of Jesus. Now, when Peter speaks, he says, as you come, a living stone rejected by men. Sorry, you come to him. Christians affirm, receive, and rejoice in the Father's assessment of who Jesus is. That's bottom line, what a Christian is. is someone who receives the Father's testimony that he is chosen, that he is precious, that he is the one Savior that has been sent, the one mediator between God and man, and rejoice in it. Find him to be a source of delight. Find him to be precious. And the Father 
will hold all accountable for their evaluation of Jesus, whether he will bestow glory on them or dishonor on them. Let's think about this for a second. What's going on? We've talked a lot about Abraham. Let's think back, Genesis 12. When God calls Abraham out of Ur, he promises him a seed, and he says as well, those that bless you, I will bless. Those that curse you, I will curse. Jesus is the true, long-awaited seed of Abraham. And as the long-awaited seed of Abraham, as Paul explains, uh, particularly in uh, Galatians 3 and 4, that promise relates most intensely to Jesus. So that those who bless Jesus are blessed by the Father, and those who curse Jesus are cursed by the Father. There is no way to reject the Son and yet to experience the blessing of the Father. Just not possible. For to say that would to say that God is a liar, which he's not. And so this is part of why Paul in Philippians 3 says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. There is a man in Paul who recognized that there was nothing greater, nothing he could own, no achievement he could accomplish that was greater than knowing Christ the mediator, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, the light of the world. That is the sort of way in which we ought to respond to him, recognizing there's nothing greater than knowing him. So the Father brings glory to his Son, and he invites us to also glory in the Son. Secondly, again, sort of an imperative here. Keep the word of the Son who keeps his word. I have two meanings with that idea of keeping his word. But Jesus moves to a promise, which of course is introduced by truly, truly, which means what? Pay close attention. Okay. If anyone, okay, there's a condition here. If anyone keeps my word. Now, this is another condition with respect to his word. Earlier in this chapter, we said, if anyone abides in my word. You know, if you're going to be a true disciple, you must abide in my word. And that idea of abide, of course, meant remain. Well, this sort of ups the ante a little bit. It has a different aspect to it when he says, keep. And so true disciples abide or remain in his word, but they also keep his word. They observe it. They attend carefully to it. Or in other words, they obey it. They have a desire that is not always met, but a desire to obey the one that they love. 
just as a child who loves his parent longs to obey that parent. The very first thing that we are to obey is that call, of course, to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' word here seems to be a hard word, in a sense, but it's reflected in other parts of Scripture. Uh, For instance, James 1, which I mentioned to my children yesterday. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. James is recognizing that there are people who only hear the word, and they might go, yeah, that's right but it makes no impact on how they live. But the fact that they're going, yeah, that's right, means that they begin to deceive themselves, thinking they are in possession of something that they are really not in possession of. And that's exactly what these Jewish people were doing. In another gospel, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 29, which some of you looked at, a couple weeks ago in community group, and sorry people in the other group, we're going to look at it briefly again this afternoon. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, their hearts are while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. They're hearing... And in in speaking, but their hearts aren't engaged with God. Their their religion and their faith is completely a superficial thing that has had essentially no impact on how they really think and therefore how they really act. Jesus again lovingly warns us that our lives are transformed by Him as we believe that which He says. True faith, in other words, manifests itself in obedience. That was the point of James chapter 2, who again is warning people against sort of a a superficial affirmation of truth, the ones who, who have the light, so to speak, but don't have the heat. They're paying lip service, that's a phrase we often use, to the truth. But there's nothing that indicates that they have been gripped by the truth, changed by the truth. Here's one of the rubs. There's a lot of rubs. But we can't obey what we don't know. If we don't know Christ's word, we're really not going to be engaged with it and seeking to obey it. There'll be, there'll be no um, walking away from it with a, with sincere repentance where we see where we have fallen short of his glory. There'll be no, therefore, no longing for a deeper understanding and experience of his forgiveness because of the cross. We have to know it. For instance, Psalm 119, 
I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so the psalmist indicates that one of the ways in which he fights the sin in his life is storing up the word of God in his heart. So he knows it. He's able to draw upon it when he's experiencing temptation, that he might flee from that temptation. A.W. Pink, in commenting on this passage in John, to keep the word is to hide it in the heart. It is to retain it in the memory. It is to be governed by it in our daily lives. And so this asks me to sort of ponder that question. How are you engaged in knowing and obeying God's Word. And I encourage you, brothers and sisters, to read both for breadth and depth. What I mean by that is, there's a devotional sort of reading by which you begin to understand the breadth of Scripture. You begin to understand it from beginning to end and how the parts begin to relate to itself. But also, you drill at times deep into particular scriptures so that you understand to a more a fuller understanding what that particular text means in light of the rest, and you mine it like you're digging for gold. Don't be satisfied with five minutes of reading your Bible in the morning. Okay, that's good for helping to develop the breadth. But you also need to spend some time drilling deep with the scriptures, so that you understand it. And memorization can help that at times, right? I'm, we're doing that right now. I saw a need in my family. It's not just my kids. So now, John, uh, James 1, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. For the anger of men does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Every day, we violate that. <laughs> if you think the pastor's family's got it all together, forget about it. If you think the pastor has it all together, forget about it. Okay? But what we're trying to do is put the word in the heart so that it begins to shape our lives, so that we do become people who are quicker to listen slower to speak, slower to become angry. And sometimes that's when you brought when you bring that up. I've told I think I've told you this story. I don't know. That's the beautiful thing about having stairs in your home and your kids are upstairs and they're doing things that make you really angry. You can do it in two ways. You can get angrier with each step that you go. You know, because that's farther I have to go to deal with these kids. Or you can start to bring up James 1. And I need to bring that up more often. <laughs> but with each step, sort of remembering that I need to be slow to become angry because that my anger will not accomplish the righteousness that God desires in my life and in their lives. Okay? That's what it looks like to keep his word as his disciple. These people who are true disciples honor and reverence Christ by keeping his word. And so Jesus 
then kind of offers this hope. He holds out a promise to them. Those who do so will never taste death. And then in the Greek, there is this phrase, in or into the age, which in all of the translations I looked in, it's not translated. Uh, so I'm like, am I missing something here? So I went to my Greek, and I went to my um, commentary to find, you know, that, has, that tells you the disputed passages and phrases, and it's not in there. This is not a disputed passage or phrase. They just, for some reason, don't want to, I don't know why they don't want to translate it, because it makes it a whole lot clearer. <laughs> If we include that idea of into the age, Jesus is not talking about physical death, which is exactly what the the Jews thought he was talking about. He was talking about the second death, judgment and condemnation. Jesus is holding out here not immortality in the sense of, if you keep my word, you're never going to taste physical death, you'll live forever, you'll be sort of like the guys in Highlander or something, I don't know. He's holding out the promise of eternal life. Now, we don't want to misunderstand this. We don't want to understand him as somehow teaching that we earn our salvation. Okay, That would be quite contrary to everything else he has said and what Paul and Peter and James and all the other apostles say as well. What he's getting at, again, is this idea of the character of true faith, which is to receive the truth of God and to begin to obey the truth of God. And he speaks this to us precisely as one who has kept the Father's word. I think I lost that particular passage. Ah, But I know him, in verse uh, 55, and I keep his word. Okay? Jesus offers this promise to those who will keep his word as one who keeps the word of the Father. He has been fully obedient to the Father. He's not asking us to do something he himself has not already done. But here's the thing. We can't do it apart from from him. Okay? We'll, we'll bring, kind of bring uh, John 15 back into here. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We can't keep the word of Christ apart from Christ himself being at work in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? It's his obedience that saves us. Our obedience is more of just the manifestation of that salvation. And if you have no obedience whatsoever, you need to start repenting and believing. Okay? Now it gets interesting. Because first they say, now we know you have a demon. What are they saying? What are they doing? Remember Jesus talked about the unpardonable sin? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? They just committed it. Because they're saying that Jesus has a demon. Not that he's acting uh, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, but under the influence of a demon. 
they've committed the they've committed the unpardonable sin. And they want to kill Jesus. But they remind Jesus first. Not death. Abraham died. That's where we get Abraham back again. Abraham died. The prophets died. Okay? The great men of our faith, they're saying, died. Who do you think you are that you can offer people the opportunity not to die? And so again, first off, they're imputing sort of the wrong understanding of death to him, but also they're saying, comparing him to the great people of the faith and saying, they died. You can't be greater than them. You will die too. Here's the fun thing. That united to Christ, we do indeed live forever. That Christ who kept the word of the Father is going to keep his word to his people as well and grant eternal life to those who keep his word. To those whom the Father has given him, to those whom the Spirit has made alive, and to those, therefore, who then subsequently place their faith in him. And so while saved because Jesus kept the Father's word, true disciples are revealed by this joyful obedience. All right, third thing. Again, imperative. Honor the light as the eternal Son. We get back, I want us to get back again to that idea, keep that in mind, of Jesus as the light of the world. He again points to the falseness of their faith. Okay, you say you honor God, but you know, God honors me. So relax, people. You don't really know God. Their claims to know God are false, according to Jesus, but Jesus says he has true knowledge. He was face to face with the Father forever. He was with God. He was God. And so he's always enjoyed fellowship and communion with the Father. He knows the Father in a way that you and I never will, and those people then that he's talking to didn't know at all. It's a harsh word that he's speaking. But he returns to Abraham and mentions that Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He says again that Abraham saw it and was glad. Emphasis here on Abraham rejoicing, being filled with joy and delight as he saw the day of Christ. Now, how many of you might be confused about what Jesus is saying right here? Abraham died over 2,000 years earlier. And Jesus is saying that Abraham saw this day and was glad. Two passages to help us understand for a second. Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. And sort of summing this up, the author notes, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Okay, that idea of seeing this, greeting it from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And so the great men of the Old Testament, the author of Hebrews says, saw 
these great promises from afar, and they welcomed them, but they did not experience them, yet they delighted in them. Again, Luke chapter 10, verse 24, Jesus says, For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see them, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And so what's, what's going on, I, I believe, in this is that Jesus is saying that Abraham and the prophets were able to see this day through the promises and prophecies that are found in the Scripture and rejoiced. Rejoiced in anticipation of the great work of salvation that God was going to do because he had promised to do. In other words, they saw the light and they had heat. The light, passion, joy in what God was going to do. They did just not go, that's nice. But I can't wait for that day. Oh, what a day it will be. And so Christ's day is the fulfillment of all the promises that they had received and that they therefore cherished. Once again, the people Jesus speaks to don't get it. What do you mean, Abraham saw your day? You're not even 50 years old. Again, Abraham's been dead for over 2,000 years. How could he see this day? They don't understand what's going on. And then Jesus drops probably the biggest bomb in the entire Bible. Again, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was or existed or came into being, I am, not I was, I am. Jesus is clearly here evoking the divine name that Moses heard at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. Jesus is claiming to himself to have always existed, to have never come into existence. The eternal Son forever. And now, here's the thing. They, uh, I'll get that in a second. Some people claim that Jesus never claimed to be God. And the only way you can say that is if you take white out and remove this text right here. Okay? Or, of course, you claim that, you know, John created that. All right? That John just made that up, that Jesus said it. And then, you know, if you're going to go there, then how do you know anything Jesus said? Because someone just made it all up. Okay? So, that's just not a very helpful argument. The Jews understood clearly what Jesus meant. For people who have been obtuse and hadn't figured it out yet, who keep misunderstanding what Jesus says, this they got. Do you want to know why they got it? Or you know how you know they got it? Because they were going to stone him. They were going to apply the injunction from Leviticus 24 upon Jesus then and there. They got it. And they didn't like it. And there was a whole lot of heat, but no light. 
Abraham rejoiced to see this day, not those guys. They hated to see that day. They were angry to be in that day. We honor Christ and we honor the Father when we receive the truth about God and rejoice like Abraham. Well, I am rejoicing now, but a better picture of it, I really hope to rejoice around Seven thirty, eight o'clock, something like that, okay? I'm hoping to be at the Boyer's house, jumping up and down, screaming, okay? I do that when my teams win championships. I get very excited, but usually my kids have been asleep, and so I couldn't get very excited, so it's like... <laughs> okay? There won't be that. No one will be asleep. If, they, if, if my team wins, I'll be very excited. If the other team wins, then there'll be other people who'll be very excited. Why is it we have no problem rejoicing over very earthly, unimportant things, but have such a hard time at times rejoicing over the, the amazing truth of our salvation in Jesus Christ? Do we forget from whence he has plucked us? Do we forget that we're brands who are pulled from the fire? That there's, apart from him, because of our sin, nothing lovely in us that would say, oh, that guy, Steve, I gotta save him. No. It's our sin. That hinders our joy in the reality of Christ, who is the Savior. And this passage calls us to express that joy, to fight against the stubbornness of your sinful nature, and to express not, you're not going to walk around all day jumping up and down, okay? but to express joy, particularly in worship, because of what Christ has done to save us. So we see that Jesus, the light of the world, brings both light and heat to a world of sinners. He brings truth and glory. That's the light. But also he, bring, he delights in that truth and glory. He brings heat. He calls us to receive the truth with delight, and to manifest that truth, uh, that, that, the, that thing with obedience. In other words, he calls us to be people of light and heat. Don't settle for just having light. Don't settle for intellectual affirmation of the truth. Delight in it. Rejoice in him. Don't settle for heat. Blind passion that often resists the truth. Honor the light of the world whom the world has rejected, but the Father has honored as chosen and precious. Let's pray. Father, I indeed pray that you would work by the Spirit that Christ would be increasingly precious to us.
That is what your word teaches us. But we need the spirit to take it out of our heads and to fill our hearts with it. I pray that you would help us to grow in that seeing Jesus as precious precisely so as a result we would keep his word. That we would walk in a way that's pleasing to him because we love him, because we trust him, because we delight in him. Father, thank you for the promise that you have given us. And in those days and when it's really hard, when the command of Jesus rubs up against our selfish desire that that promise will remind us of the grace that is to come in the future, that we might continue to walk with Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.